Welcome to episode 246 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Dr. Brendan Haley is the policy director for Efficiency Canada, the national voice for an energy efficient economy. He recently wrote an op-ed for Policy Options magazine titled, A New Deal for Energy Affordability and Net Zero Emissions. I'm going to talk to him about that, about what that new deal should look like. So welcome to the interview, Brendan. Pleasure to be here. Now, I'm going to, uh, I want to talk, if we need a new deal, I want to talk about the old deal, the old social bargain. I think that's a good way to get into this. So um, please explain to listeners what the old electricity social bargain looks like. Sure. Yeah, there's always, you know, we have technologies and those technologies often are coupled with, you know, what you'd call regulatory or social institutions and policies that that deliver on basic human needs, right? And 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 that would, that's what I would call a social bargain, a social bargain for how we use the technologies of the day to meet basic human needs. And the old social bargain in the 20th century was very much based on, you got big utilities, they build big centralized power plants and what customers get in return is low energy prices. So customers are passive and in return for essentially giving their money to a big centralized utility, that utility develops economies of scale and they get low energy prices in return. And I think that is unneeded now because we have decentralized technologies, but um, it's breaking down because when we go in Canada now to build new hydro plants, you know, they're becoming increasingly expensive for, for instance. Yeah. I, and then the, uh, there are other issues here around uh as we electrify the economy, partly in response to climate policy, but partly in response to the lower cost of things like electric vehicles, uh, you know, modelers tell us that we're going to need two to three times as much power generation as as we used in the past by 2050, and we're going to need bigger power grids, and on and on and on. And what you're arguing, if I understand this correctly, is that that the, these new technologies allow us to escape that model. And yeah. so even as we need more electri clean electricity, fair enough, but we don't need to get it from the grid. We don't need to get it from large centralized power, uh, power generators and, uh, and utilities. And the customer plays now a different role in the market than did before. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, I think, one real warning I think we should have is if is if we try to um, get to a net zero electricity grid by solely just building up bigger grids, um, it could be prohibitively expensive. Um, and in fact, you know, we might not need to build those transmission lines or those peaker power plants or those um, centralized battery storage, uh, you know, equipment devices for utilities if we actually focus on the customer side and reducing their energy demand and having them use their energy demand in much more efficient and flexible ways. And the opportunity there for an entirely new social bargain on affordability, you know, comes from engaging those customers, right? And those customers having lower bills because they're way more energy efficient, but also actually getting paid um, because you know, one one thing that can happen now is as customers actually use their energy at different periods of time, that has a value to the grid, especially a grid with a lot of renewables on it, and customers can get paid for offering that service. 
Um, I'd much rather pay a customer with say an electric vehicle or a hot water tank for charging that hot water tank, you know, say overnight or when the wind is blowing than paying a centralized utility um, for, you know, a peaker power plant. So those are the de decisions that we have to make of how we want to make a sustainable energy system affordable by really focusing on the demand side or, or only focusing on the supply side, which I would argue is less equitable, more expensive. What, my, my understanding of this the debate comes from watching the Americans because uh, there's a lot of discussion down there. Right? First of all, they've got a creaky old grid that was in worse shape than, than ours was. Uh, and so when the, they you know, began uh, realizing they needed to expand it and that the power, load, uh, power loads were going to begin to grow again and you know, we're going to have electric vehicles, all of that. And so they had to just, not, they had to essentially re-engineer what they, their whole their utility models, their power grids, their power generation. It, it was a bigger task than it appears to have been in Canada. Canada, in, in some ways, suffers from its own success. You know, we've 80, 84% clean energy already because of our hydro and nuclear resources. And the we don't have a, a lot of utilities. We mostly have crown-owned utilities in, in most of the provinces. And, uh, and the hydro has been just a blessing. You know, it's so stable and so low cost that, you know, in, in, I, I live in BC, which is a hydro province. I think I pay something like nine and a half cents, you know, and, and it, it just never rarely goes down. We rarely have outages. So, but in the U.S., and this is where I'm going, I actually have a point I'm going to make here. <laughs> the where what I notice about the U.S. is the only time they have this discussion is when something breaks, like in California. You know, when they were having, you or know, Texas. Yeah, or Texas, exactly, in 2021. And to have to make the changes based on some sort of rational, you know, discourse where we all come to, some, you know, a new consensus and go, okay, all right, policymakers, now we all agree here. We Canadians, we're all united in this. We've come to a consensus and we, we now want to move forward with new policies and, and we're going to change things. Uh, I'd be surprised if it happens that way. Well, I mean, I think when I look to the states, a lot of um, the American states, we benchmark, you know, demand side management, utility energy saving programs annually. And the you know, the American states are always ahead of the Canadian provinces. So if you look at leading American states like Massachusetts, Vermont, New York, um, you know, they're always ahead. So, um, you know, the U.S. is just more places, but they also you know, I think have more of a leadership on energy efficiency and really thinking about um, the demand side and those energy savings as an alternative to a more cost-effective alternative to those supply side options. So, you know, one example right now is you have a utility in Vermont that's actively incenting its customers to um, put batteries on site, right? And they're saying by having the customers have the batteries in their businesses or their homes, that actually saves money. We don't have to build the transmission lines that we thought we we're going to build. And by the way, it does double duty because those customers get security in the event of a power outage. The rest of the time, it provides um, a real service to the grid by soaking up, say, excess wind energy. You know, those are the types of things that, again, could be part of uh, a new social bargain here. And so I, I do think that they they think about this quite a bit in the States. 
Now in Canada, I mean, one place to look is, is we've let rested on our laurels a bit, but, but Hydro Quebec and Quebec in particular has done a lot of planning on what does net zero really look like. And even though, you know, Quebec is one of the cleanest electricity grids in the country, they are aggressively going after energy efficiency now and these demand flexibility solutions like letting customer, you know, trying to incent customers to use their thermostats slightly differently during those peak times and paying those customers for that. So there is some hope here in Canada that even with clean energy systems, you know, we're really going to be more sophisticated in engaging customers. Yeah, I mean, Hydro-Quebec has been uh, uh, the only hydro utility that I'm aware of that has, a, you know, embraced wind and solar. And, you know, the intermittency of inverter-based ba resources combined with hydro, the, the potential to use hydro as a storage battery uh, is, is enormous. And they already have enormous uh, uh, hydro resources. And you can imagine how much wind and solar that they could integrate uh, with that system. Now, uh, but at the same time, just for, and again, for our uh, listeners who aren't Canadian, uh, BC and Quebec are leading this. I think it's, it's generally acknowledged that that those two provinces have done the most uh, on, in terms of planning, in terms of programs, in terms of progress as a rule. You know, and for example, you know, both of them are around 20% uh, electric vehicles share of the new vehicle sales. You know, whereas Alberta's 3.8%. You know, so they're the leaders. And then we have the laggards, and they're even worse than laggards. Alberta and Saskatchewan absolutely resist everything that the federal government or anybody tries to do to clean up their grids, clean up their electricity system. They just want to, you know, burn gas till till the end of time. And then you have some provinces in the middle, like Ontario. It's planning up until recently. You know, bless them. You got to give give credit where credit's due. But Ontario, up until recently, was a real laggard uh, under the Ford government, anyway. Not not the government that came before it, and and then we have the maritime provinces that are it's kind of a mix, um, and I guess you know the Americans are like that too. They got fifty states though, <laughs> to to. But anyway, I, my point here is that this it's a very it's a patchwork quilt across Canada in terms of this kind of planning. So yeah, I think I think you're you're, you know, you're you're benchmarking if you will across the country is is probably a good benchmarking for general climate policy and electricity policy. When we look at energy efficiency and some of these say demand side solutions like demand flexibility solutions in particular, um, it's much more finer grained and you can look for best practices you know, across the country. So, um, you know, I mentioned Quebec has a, has a separate subsidiary solely focused on engaging customers on demand flexibility and on, as you said, you know, charging their hot water tanks at different times. Um, BC Hydro is doing a lot of interesting work there too. Ontario's done some work. So for instance, now customers in Ontario can get paid for um, working with the utility during those really hot days to increase the temperature slightly, and then customers get paid for that. Um, but on energy efficiency, you know, it's it's Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI that actually tend to lead the country quite a bit in, in energy savings from programs in particular. And Nova Scotia is a province where I'm from, and uh, they're going to be a, a province to look out for because they have an 80% renewable energy target on a coal-based system. They don't have a lot of hydro imports. 
Um, and they're going to try to figure out how to integrate that many new renewables onto almost an islanded system. And I think it makes a lot of sense for them to do um, vehicle to grid integrations, right? To, to really use those electric vehicle batteries for the grid, um, to, to use those hot water tanks for the grid. There's tons of heat pumps there. So, you know, modulating slightly HVAC systems um, for the grid to integrate those renewables. So I do think it's a bit more, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting in Canada uh, uh, to, to watch. And it's actually a lot of those maritime provinces are, are places to look. Thanks for clarifying that, actually. I wasn't familiar with as much with the maritime provinces as I am some of the others. So that's that's good to know. We have we have more leaders and less laggards now. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk because this comes up all the bloody time, you know, it's Omo, you know, wind and solar, they're intermittent. You can't, you can't, you, you, you know, they're, they're lead to unreliability. And, and we have to admit that, you know, NERC, the North American Energy Reliability Corporation, you know, put out a report that last year that talked about energy policy, integration of more renewables leads to, is going to cause reliability problems. So these, and and that covers Canada and the U.S., so it's not like there isn't some grain of truth in these criticisms or objections, but the there are so many ways that we can actually attach attack this using the technologies you're talking about. So we can have uh, demand response. You know, the uh, you adjust your your uh, your uh, HVAC system and your water all that kind of stuff at, at depending on what the utility requires. Then you can. Uh, include storage not just vehicle to to grid integration but you can you can have uh you know batteries in your home uh and be paid to discharge them at and then there's you know peak load or, or sorry load shifting so shift that load on onto the midnight to 6 a.m there's virtual power plants boy the department of energy in the u.s is big on virtual power plants for anybody who wants to listen i, I interviewed jennifer downing from uh, from the DOE just before Christmas, and we put that that interview up a, a few you know late last week. I mean, there's so much that can be done, and we've we in Canada, the U.S. is just beginning to tap that. We haven't. We're we're even behind that. Yeah. So the point I was making in the article. I mean, the way I think about it is that you know bringing on a bunch of renewables onto an electricity system, it's just a new configuration. Right, and you just need a whole bunch of other complementary technologies to to match that configuration. And the opportunity with that configuration is actually there's there's huge opportunities to actually engage customers much more, have customers get paid, and actually deliver energy affordability in entirely new ways. Right. I mean, so the first thing to say though is that we're going to need a lot less renewables. We're going to need a lot less transmission lines if we all just use less energy. And there's opportunities to. Right. Um, you know, cut energy bills, um, you know, 50 to 80%, you know, just with good insulation, good air sealing, things like heat pumps. And that, yes, that means a lot more electrification, but even when we offset that electrification with those just standard building envelope upgrades, we're not going to need a lot, of, you know, as much electricity as some people might think. But then, you know, bringing on renewables onto a grid means that the ability to match the demand side with the supply side of those renewables, that becomes way more valuable, 
And that's the opportunity to engage customers. So all of a sudden, a customer who can charge their hot water tank when the wind is blowing, a customer who puts a battery um, on their solar system, a customer who has an electric vehicle, which is a battery just sitting in their driveway, commercial buildings that can do very smart modulating work with their HVAC systems or their lighting systems. All of a sudden, people can get paid for providing, for flexing their demand and providing those services because that's going to be way more valuable to complement renewables. You know, when we have these conversations, very often it's it's usually implicit we're, you know, that we're talking about residential customers. But in, there are some provinces, like in Alberta, 86% of their electricity demand is from uh, industrial and commercial. Now it's not that high in other in other provinces because Alberta's got upgraders and refineries and big big oil and gas operations. But nevertheless, you know there's a big opportunity here, and and the the larger companies are already thinking about self generation. They're thinking about but primarily about solar panels, maybe you know covering their their uh, the roof of their their buildings. And maybe having some uh, arrays in, you know, if their yard is big enough to put an array, have have storage there. And that's a huge opportunity. In addition to modulating their HVAC systems and whatever other load they've got in their, in their plant, they have this other capability of self-generation and self-storage that then works, can work nicely with the grid. And we don't talk about that very much, do we? No, and I think that's that's probably one some of the earliest and more cost-effective opportunities, as you mentioned, commercial buildings. I mean, I would say, again, your the HVAC system, the lighting system, doing new things with with artificial intelligence, doing new things with predictive, you know, analytics. Um, that is all very possible, and for very small changes that nobody really notices, right, or that. Uh, you're using energy, you're preventing using energy at times when nobody was actually getting any value from it. Anyway, all of a sudden that actually becomes a value opportunity, a value proposition for um, those businesses. So yeah, in, in industrial, it's it's kind of old, you know, old demand control with, you know, pulp and paper plants, as you'd call up the pulp and paper plant, you'd say, hey, we got a electricity peak, can you uh, ramp down a little bit? You know, that's been going on for decades and decades. And now we have the opportunity for it to become, you know, much more sophisticated, um, you know, and, and again, uh, really optimizing the, the use of that energy. What role does policy and regulation play in this transition? A, a making it more effective and B, speeding up the process. Yeah, I think I think this is the key thing is it's not the argument is not is sustainable energy going to be affordable or not. It's how do we make it affordable by using these opportunities, by using the opportunity for energy efficiency, for demand flexibility and for, say, you know, things like on-site energy storage. So so first, I would say, you know, we got to start thinking about energy efficiency, not as just this small incremental thing. Um, we got to think about it almost as a universal social program in net zero emission economy and everyone has to have access to it. And in Canada right now, the people who still don't have access to it are the lowest income Canadians. Um, the federal government has restricted its current um, policies only to fuel oil. That's very technocratic, but it's not part of this social bargain where everyone can access energy efficiency. So people should be demanding lower bills first through energy efficiency. The second piece is just 
having utilities prioritize energy efficiency and demand flexibility over any supply side options. So before you build that peaker power plant, before you say you need to build that new transmission line, have you considered the ability to engage customers in doing it lower cost and having those customers benefit through demand flexibility and energy efficiency? Those would be, you know, the two major ones, I would say. There, I interviewed uh, uh, Professor Mark Jackart, uh, Jackert, who's a, a well-known economist, energy economist in Canada, and he was recently appointed the the head of the BC Utilities Commission. And one of the questions I should have asked him when I interviewed him was if, as the head of the regulator that deals with BC Hydro, he would now do those kinds of things. And maybe that's a good place to start because utilities, dealing with utilities directly, they have a very conservative culture. They just want to keep the lights on, right? And yeah. and they're used to building generate generating capacity and transmission lines. If you want more power, that's what we do. And or you know your load is going to increase. And uh, you you think that's maybe a, a good way to look at this is coming at it from the regu the regulators, put it the right people, get the right people running. Yeah, the absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when we look at the, the states and provinces, but that really lead on energy efficiency, it's because their regulator has, you know, often directed them to prioritize those demand side solutions over the supply side solutions, because it's in the interest of the ratepayers, it's in the interest of the, the overall cost reduction often of the electricity system. And it's the regulator's job to do that. And then it's and then the utilities, you know, follow along. So that's absolutely where I would, you know, suggest we go. What policymakers can do is is say that these are the broad objectives and allow regulators like that to um, you know direct the utility system appropriately. But that can also mean, you know, finding ways for utilities to, um, you know, get get incented in different ways. So instead of getting incented for just building power plants, you can have performance-based regulation where utilities actually earn their revenues based on how much they're engaging customers, how much they're, you know, uh, improving reliability, things like that. Well, Brenda, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you very much. I have absolutely no doubt that in the next year or two, you and I will be having more conversations like this. Thank you very much for your insights. My pleasure.